Just realize that uh, I'm going to be talking for an hour and a half. I might need to use a washroom beforehand. So. You think I'm joking? Okay, so um, we won't be here. Um, I would love for this to be five minutes because this is a very hard text and um, I probably spent more time thinking and praying about this in the last two or three weeks than I have ever before. So I want to start with four conversations um, that I've had with people that I love dearly. Um, one was with a family member, uh, not in our family, but my, our larger family, and it was about our oldest daughter, uh, Kayla, some of you know. Uh, has been for the last eight weeks uh, down as kind of one of the core leaders at Camp Pekawewin. Um, she initially was there uh, primarily as uh, medical, uh, because of her EMT training as kind of medical help. Um, she's part of the, at least part of the kind of thinking and organizational team. And uh, if you know anything about that, part of it is uh, is just the, the need to kind of place before the city the, the, the needs of our sisters and brothers uh, in the um, indigenous community. And part of it is a, is a conversation around homelessness and the way um, both all, all levels of government, but specifically uh, the city of Edmonton, are handling homelessness and, uh, and they are demanding certain things. I um, mean, uh, some of the, the action around that community um, is... Uh, is quite beautiful and um, we've been volunteering at certain points mostly just um, providing money and stuff but I had a conversation with a family member uh, a few days ago uh, and uh, this person is a decided crit critique criti critical person critiker criti something like that um, of the truth and reconciliation project and any of those kinds of uh, movements as far as homelessness or First Nations uh, rights and opportunity. Uh, and so one of the things this person, and I love this person dearly, said, well, if those people down there would only get jobs, then there wouldn't be a problem. And uh, I winced a bit. Um, I was immediately, my blood pressure went up pretty high. And, but I, I tried to reason uh, this person through uh, some of the flaws of that thinking. The other comment uh, she made was, I was highly critical of some of the stories coming out of there of uh, drug use and suspected crime and, and, uh, and defacement of the community. And uh, again, I tried to work through that. Okay, first, first conversation. Second conversation was with a number, from a conversation with someone a number of years ago. Um, uh, in the next two, I'm gonna, next three, I'm gonna change some names and and because I have to use names a bit, but and some of the details so that it's not identifiable. Um, but I will say nobody from this church. That's just what I want to say. So Bob is a uh, was a married uh, man. He was a church leader at our converse, at our congregation. Um, I probably of all the leaders uh, in that group had the, my closest connection and relationship with this man. Um, he was as selfless and faithful as any person I had ever met, um, deeply committed in following Jesus, and gave more to the life of this church community than any other person, and not just through a few years, but through, a little buzz here, 
but through really decades and uh, served in, in a beautiful way and continues to serve Jesus. But the conversation was about two years into our friendship where he was just letting me know some of his own personal struggles and he revealed to me that um, the biggest ongoing struggle for him was his struggle with homosexual desire. And uh, he was married, had a number of children, um, continued to be faithful all, all through their marriage, uh, to, to that marriage, um, never in any way acted out of those desires, but uh, his whole journey uh, in his adult life had this constant pressure and desire around um, his, his sexual desires and energy um, around homosexuality. Another person in a different congregation, and I'm going to call him Joe, although he is about as le least Joe as you possibly can be, but um, he was a young man. I was mentoring him uh, from about age 15 to 19, um, a very tender disciple of Jesus. Uh, he was a worship leader in our congregation uh, most of the time that I knew him, a very worshipful heart and mind, um, and uh, was, has created some of the most beautiful moments at Christmas and Easter uh, in worship that I've ever been a part of. Um, he was never abused, raised in a strongly Christian home, um, has a deep, ongoing passion for justice and for purity and for life, but again, is... Uh, uh, right from his earliest recollection, um, sees himself um, as a homosexual and as, as a desire for um, men, not for women, um, but a deeply committed follower of Jesus. Fourth person, fourth conversation. This is a guy named Gus, and this guy is like a Gus, believe me. Um, he's a blogger, um, and uh, and of some strong kind of right-wing um, perspectives. Uh, he uh, has been a champion for marriage and focus on the family and other organizations like that. Um, he's strongly committed to purity. And one of the things that he was, uh, he has uh, worked through in kind of his blogging and sometimes in very, very toxic ways is trying to protect the sanctity of marriage uh, and in doing so, condemning all same-sex marriage and any legislation. Um, he's been incredibly active politically in that kind of movement. Um, but my conversations with Gus, it's a conversation my wife and I had with Gus's wife. Um, because she finally, after years and years, decided to leave Gus. Um, and the reason was, he was so deeply um, affected and addicted to pornography that it had reshaped so much of their relationship and their marriage, and that hidden uh, struggle became a toxic breeder of, uh, of hypocrisy, and it leaked into all kinds of horrific actions and attitudes to his family, uh, to the community around them. Um, when he writes in his blog, or I don't know if he does anymore, but when he wrote in his blog, it, it had this kind of air of superiority and of condemnation in almost everything he wrote. So now, and this is in classical uh, First Nations motif, I'm not gonna refer to those specifically. I might come back, we'll see. Four different conversations, all I think which touch into some aspect of the text that we have. 
But before we go there, I think you know where we're going. Um, I want to just create some context. And I want to remind you that the Bible, when it was written, does not have chapters and verses. There's not a section that says, oh, okay, uh, God's requirements on sexual identity. And then you have that, uh, verses 18 to 32. It doesn't do that kind of thing, right? In fact, that between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's no other designation of a division there. It all flows um, in a kind of natural sense. And we create problems for us, for ourselves, when we isolate texts into small chunks, and then we grab a hold of them, and we push them forward, and, and, and in, in, for, in force, isolating them, and creating, creating a significance to them that's yanked out of context and forgets the weight of everything around it. And so, in the passage I'm, in, I'm dealing with, I want to look at what's said right before and right after the passage first, so you get a sense of where Paul's going. Now, I'm not going to fully lay this out. Um, Anna's going to work a bit at it in chapter 2 next week, and Mark is going to go into chapter 3 the week after, and, uh, and now you're committed, Anna, though you, I said it publicly. <laughs> uh, and then Todd uh, in, a couple, in a couple weeks after that. And so th this is, the, is part of the movement of the text. But we can't just grab verse 26 and 27 and think, oh, okay, well, this is what we have to deal with, right? And unfortunately, Christians have done that so many times. And they have basically done almost irreparable damage to how the scripture is viewed because they yank a few verses out of context. So, verse 15, I'm not reading all of it, but it says, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel, the good news. This is about good news. There's something that, in Paul that I, that I want to do this. I want to proclaim this good news. And part of it is because he's, he's going to walk us through, and believe me, it's going to be painful for, for two chapters, it, the kind of utter depravity of humanity. But he says, I, I, I want to tell you some good news, but we have to kind of walk through the bad news first. Then he says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of this gospel, of this great news. Like, this is the very force and thrust of, of God's saving work for humanity. And, and as we talked last week, or a little bit even the week before, not the kind of personal salvation where you, you know, say a little sinner's prayer and you get on your right way and you can go to heaven, but the, the thrust of God's movement of salvation, of, of delivering humanity from itself. And then the third one is verse 17, right before the passage we're going to read. For in the gospel, the righteousness or the justice of God is revealed. So in this good news, God is going to show us something about his right way, his, the path of justice for all of humanity. And then we have our passage, whatever we read it yet. And then at the end of it, and so um, it says this, it says, you therefore, right? And this is like decidedly kind of breaking the fourth wall. You, in light of what we've just read, and, and right, 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 in light of what I've just said, you people, the audience, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. So that's our passage. Uh, that's, that's the context of our passage. Okay, the thrust of God's good news 
And that's some really kind of bad news about the brokenness of humanity. And he says, in case you get start thinking, you know what, let's point at that person with that thing in their, in their mind. He says, you have no excuse because you do the same things. It kind of has the thrust of what James says in another passage where he says, if, and he's talking about, um, about being, showing favoritism from one person to another, something we are all do in so many ways. He says, if you show favoritism, you have become a lawbreaker and you are judges with evil thoughts, right? So you, you fall at this point, you are a lawbreaker, you do the same things. And so what is Paul saying? What's the kind of broken reality uh, that he lays out? We're going to look at this just in three different chunks uh, and we'll read it kind of as we go through it. But the first part is talking about humanity's corruption. And this is in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So he says, there's really good news. I want to share it with you. But you need to know that God is actively resisting another force in the world. And ultimately, the good news is because God is in this kind of resistance mode. The wrath isn't like we think of wrath, right? Uh, my, my kids, Luke does something. Luke doesn't usually do uh, My kids do something. Let's just play Josh. Josh does something. And I right away get mad, right? Well, okay, that really makes me sound bad, but I mean, it's true. Right? Right? Like you, and, and often, you know, or somebody at work says something or does something, or most often the guy in front of me driving a black pickup truck does something. And right away, anger rises, blood pressure goes up, and usually my mouth does something it shouldn't do, right? That's wrath in our kind of perspective. That's not the decided uh, uh, motion and thrust of God against evil that we see in the word wrath here. So this is the decided weight and thrust of God's uh, character against all that is evil, uh, against any kind of godlessness and wickedness. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I watch the news and I see um, the level of corruption politically, I see the weight of, 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 of greed and of manipulation of people for, for uh, uh, their own kind of satisfaction and pleasure. I see um, the, 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 the constant reality of attitudes of racism and of, of superiority um, economically or otherwise. And I, it just is overwhelming. And, and sometimes my, the emotion 
kind of the, the, the dad emotion, the driving emotion overwhelms me and I get very angry. Um, and there, there's something in the hint of that that is reflective of God. Like God has a settled position against all that's evil in the world. And the exploitation of children or whatever that is. Now he says, there's something they do, they, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. That even what is understandable, what is clearly there and in front of us, and, and maybe even to some degree objective, they, they've kind of given up on that. And it's all about protection of their authority or power or protection of the resources that they are hanging on to. And so you see some of this, this kind of weight of human pain and brokenness and evil. One of the things I do with my students, and Tanya will understand this, but is I'm always trying to get them to understand pronoun reference. If you see a pronoun like he, she, it, they, what is it referring to? And there's a pronoun that's all the way through here that's the word they. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks. Their thinking, their few foolish hearts, they proclaimed to be wise. They became fools. Who's the they? Who's God talking about in this? Is it that person who's my neighbor, who does something that maybe is listed in the list of things that are going to come? No, it's not. It's not an individual. It's not a person. It's humanity. Humanity is in this place of the evil exchange, um, I'm going to call it. Now keep in mind, right away he set up here this contrast with creation. That this is the way things were created, and humanity has walked away from that element of creation. They've exchanged something. Um, they, they've uh, embraced foolishness in their approach. And you know what? I'm a part of that. You're a part of that. We as human beings are a part of the flawed, broken response to creation and to God, ultimately. I think it's important in that context to place this in, in the bigger story that ties itself into creation. See, God creates and everything is good and good and blessed. And Adam and Eve are there in the, in the beauty and delight of the garden. It's there for human thriving and fruit giving and, uh, and, and beauty. And then... Uh, the, the man and the woman sin. And God approaches them, and in, their, and in, the, in the light of the kind of revealing of their sin before God, they resort to blaming and to um, uh, uh, kind of deceit with God and with each other. And then God kind of lays out, okay, this is what things are going to look like. And it's, it's this kind of ugly statement about what humanity is going to be like. That now our, our entire lives are going to be kind of in contrast to the kind of intimacy of relationship and fruit in the garden. It's going to be uh, the pain of, of working to get that fruit and, and of inter, broken interrelationships between humanity. And, uh, and then, so that seed of, of deceit and of, of betrayal and ultimately of blaming, what's the very next thing that happens in the story? Cain kills his brother, Abel. See, when sin enters the human condition, everything is broken. Everything is out of skew. 
everything is is um, being is being replaced by um, from that which was good. Now, um, there's a key that point in here is 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 the, the is the sense of this is idolatry. This is replacing um, God for something else, and, and whether it's technology or uh, comfort or pleasure or whatever, we have um, as as well-described idols as any other point in human history. And so then we come to this passage, uh, which is in the middle of it, and I, I think it's important to understand that this is part of the weight and movement of what Paul is saying. Uh, I also want to say that there's a lot of interpretations about how this looks. And there are times when I just feel overwhelmed at trying to understand this in a cultural place, meaningfully, with the people who are my friends, the conversations I have, and in a way that adequately represents what I think Jesus is about. Um, and I'm not going to project that I have arrived at this sense. I think there's a, a, a need for humility of interpretation here. But I also will say, we cannot pull two verses here and yank them out to project something about um, people in our world or about people in our community or people in our family um, and fail to follow through on the rest of the passage. And so uh, this is a humanities exchange. And keep in mind, this is part of, right? So he sets up, they've exchanged the glory of God for something idolatrous. And so therefore... God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with, one, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. In the interest of time, I'm not going to walk through a bunch of interpretive kind of lenses for this. I'm going to project something of what I see in the flow of the passage uh, and then uh, and ask you to uh, consider that as we go through. I want to also say that this passage, along with two others, pretty much, um, have been used to, to hurt not only brothers and sisters um, who are in the middle of a struggle about their sexual identity and what that means and what their relationship is with the community of faith in the process, but I think has done more damage to the gospel and what, how people view Jesus than, than probably um, almost any other um, application of scripture. I think in the process here you see you see you see uh, uh, some statement um, that this flows from what happened before, and I think it's helpful to see it in that kind of creational intent. So he uses a word here a number of times. They exchange that which was natural for unnatural, natural, unnatural, in that process. Um, I wonder if, and this is my, my kind of developing view, 
I wonder that it, uh, if when humanity sinned, it affected everything. And there are elements to which the world we live in is somewhat broken and skewed in a way that my friend, what did I call him? No, Bob. I can't even remember what I called him in my story. I almost said his name, Joe. That my friend Joe, he's not doing anything wrong in his thinking, in his action, in how he sees the world, how he understands Jesus, or anything. But he is part of the collective movement of the brokenness of humanity that affects everything. And that people around us who are struggling in relation to their homosexual desires are a part of the web of that. Now, as a kind of a little bit of an intro point, I think it's important what he says in verse 24. He says, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart and to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. That verse is not talking at all in any way about sexual immorality. It means that they are consumed with the pleasuring of their bodies. Humanity is consumed with the pleasuring of their bodies and their satisfaction, satisfaction sexually. Now, one of the outcroppings of that then is, is, is because of this. The mistake we make, I think, is when we, we level a, a passage like this at an individual who is at the point of, of trying to figure out who they are and their identity, and then we label this as sinful action or sinful thought, and then we, we isolate that person. Rather than see that we're all caught up in, a, in the flaw of a sinful world and a sinful uh, kind of thrust of humanity, and all of our thinking is off and skewed. Everything about how we relate and connect to each other is off. When I have a conversation with someone about um, something that we both perceive to be painful but from different points of view, how am I entering that conversation completely pure in motive, right? I've got other things that are going on. Maybe part of it is self-protectionism. Maybe part of it is uh, a desire to kind of be seen in a certain way. And so I'm, any of those kind of relational things, is if you spend some time in counseling or you spend some time really kind of in a vulnerability, understanding who you are and what your impulses are, you realize that all of our thinking is flawed. All of our thinking is projecting some sense of that unnatural um, brokenness of, of creation at the beginning. Um, and so when I'm connecting with Joe, if I'm projecting this verse as you're living in sin and, and your homosexual desires are part of the brokenness of that sin, I think I'm missing the good news in all of that. Because it's isolating the behavior individually rather than understanding that there's an element to which um, all of this is a, is, is a bit tainted um, uh, as a result of, of original sin and that perpetuation of that in humanity. Um, I, I like, and I did highlight in red, the kind of the movement there, right? So they've exchanged something. There's something flawed in human thinking Therefore, or consequently, God just allows them to come to the full weight of, of what their sin is. And, and sometimes we, we project like, well, 
God, what, why did you do that? Why did you, why do you let human beings be human beings? Like, wh why give them their own free will to just mess up constantly? Um, but there's something beautiful in, the, in the, both the grace and mercy of God to allow humans to come to the end of themselves and, their, and who they are rather than to um, then it just kind of wipe everything away, to, to cleanse and make everything antiseptic, uh, morally or otherwise. And he goes, for this reason, God again give, gives them over, allows the thrust of the way humans are connecting to just be felt among themselves. I have a lot more I want to say there, but um, I, I think the last part, in the interest of being a little quicker, is super important to understand because the problem Christians have made, and I think the problem the church has had in response to this discussion, is we've pulled out two verses from this passage of scripture and we proclaim um, that as a level of sin or a social disruptively social disruptive influence far beyond the weight of anything else that happens in the New Testament or the, the thrust of Scripture. And you get a simple word like greed, which is in hundreds of places in the Bible, and we in the Western world have fully embraced greed in all of its impulses, and we live and act and vote everything to perpetuate that greed. Rather than deal with it the way the scripture is asking us to, to deal with it. And so I think it's worth seeing that passage uh, in the context of what happens right after. And he says this, he says, uh, furthermore, or more than all this, and it's kind of the verb, the, the word there is a, this participle is kind of it intensifying things. So to get more real about where this goes for us as humans than where we've gone sexually, he says, um, he starts to list all these idols. And I'm not going to read that. I'm just going to go through because I do read it in the next two slides. Let's walk through what Paul is saying here. Like, he says, they started to do this. But here's where it really goes. This is, this is how bad it gets, Paul's saying. And he says, um, so next slide. Sinful desires. Um, God gave them over to depraved minds. They could do what ought not to be done. They became filled with every kind of wickedness or sinful desire. That's craving that which is forbidden. It's longing for something we can't have or can't do. Oh, I was going to have you all put your hand up. <laughs> Sexual impurity. This is not just lust, um, but this is, this is luxuriating in lust. This is luxurious from Act 4, scene, Act 5, Scene 4. Um, luxurious lust, constant, pervasive lust, being overwhelmed by lust. The, the message around us is constantly moving towards our lust and our desire of our lust. Um, degrading is that idea of t treating shamefully, of treating another person in a way that puts them down and shames them, of unnatural sexual passions and functioning. Um, and the, the, the idea there is um, uh, not even necessarily, I'm sorry, I, I, it says unnatural, oh, depravity, it shouldn't be sexual in there, I don't know how that got in there, I was fixating on that maybe while I was doing this, unnatural passions and functioning, too much information, um, of corrupted minds, of not thinking the way we need to think about things, 
of wickedness, that's kind of injustice, both in the heart and life. When we see people who are homeless, how do we think about what the justice of God looks like? How do, what are the attitudes of our heart? Where do we spend our money in relation to that? And then he says evil, that's the idea of depravity, or kind of every purpose and desire is that of evil, of greed. And the key hint there is the idea of coveting. It's that kind of Ten Commandments, the covetous desire for another woman, another man's wife, another man's donkey, another man's uh, whatever, right? The desire for more. Um, the depravity is a desire to injure someone else. Unashamed to break laws. And you say, well, that's not me. No, I like everybody. I don't hurt other people. Well, when you have an argument or when there's a family discussion, to what degree are, is everything completely pure in your motive? Or is there some way that you, by how you argue or what you say or how you position yourself, is actually trying to create a, an authority that, that demeans that person? Uh, the envy or want or desire, uh, the, the word murder is really kind of more like slaughter, um, strife, contention, wrangling, debate. I cannot tell you how many people take verse 26 and 27 and 28 and, and because of their position on that one single issue have embodied almost everything in this list, especially contention, wrangling, and debate. Uh, the idea of deceit, that's, it has an element of craft to it, of kind of deceptiveness. Uh, there's a subtlety to it. Um, to use a good old word, equivocation, presenting a kind of truth, but bearing a lie through that truth. Uh, malice, and this is kind of like the same word we get for a cancerous bit. It's malignant, right? Um, it's growing and festering. Um, the idea of bad character. Whoa, there's more. There's another whole list. Let's go on. Gossip. This is the person who whispers the truth who detracts from something in order to hurt another person. And it often projects itself as goodwill, but it ends up being destructive. Slander whispers a lie and defames the person, talks against them, a backbiter. <clears throat> People who hate God. Now, do we hate God in, in word or deed? Or do our actions proclaim that we are not lovers of God, but haters in, in fact? Uh, then the next three words kind of sound all alike. You're kind of like, why is he using three words to say the same thing? But he's not. <clears throat> Insolent is somebody who lifts himself up with pride, who projects himself, sorry, um, projects himself and what he wants and his ideas, um, who is um, heaps insults at other people to demean them to lift himself up or herself up. Uh, the arrogant person is one who... Um, is wanting to show himself above other people. I love the word overtopping. It was in this one lexicon I was looking at. Who wants to see himself as over the top of other people, right? I'm in the position of authority. I'm the one people should see. I'm the one who people should talk to. I want to be over the top of other people. The braggart, the, the kind of the idea of empty pretending. The person who's projecting, a, a, this is that radio preacher of Colorado who was preaching sermon after sermon against the gay community 
And then we discovered that not only did he have a pornography addiction, he was uh, paying uh, male prostitutes for sex, right? The, the empty pretender. People who invent ways of doing evil, they discover, they contrive, they're in, ingenious in how they find ways to make money and hurt other people. Um, disobey parents, they're not compliant. Ooh, that's really bad. I, right? Unpersuadable, right? They've decided I don't give a rip what my parents say and you can't uh, push them off of that. People who have no understanding, and the lexicon said stupid, which I love that, right? Like, let's get right down to the brass tacks. People who are just stupid about the world we live in. Um, not faithful, they break covenants, they, 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 they break any kind of sense of tie or bond. No love, and the idea is they don't have any affection. Like, these are kind of almost sociopathic, right? They, they don't feel the pain of others around them. There's a kind of inhumanity to them. People who are full of condemnation. Again, how many times in relation to this issue um, are those who are sitting on their boastful, arrogant, insolent horses and condemning them in their inhumanity, uh, condemning um, them by their own inhumanity and full of condemnation. They approve of unrighteousness and unjust behavior. Um, that's really condemning and hard to hear. That's who we, we are as humanity. We desperately need good news. We need something to pull us as a, as, as, as a species out of this place of brokenness, out of the, 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 the misconstruing of our reality into something that's painful and hurtful for other people. And so as we end, I want to read um, what's called a targum. And I've done this a couple times before. Uh, one commentary I've done uh, does, goes back to how the Jews, a Jewish rabbi would, would, would enter into a text. He would take the actual Hebrew text and he would read it, but he would provide a little kind of textual and cultural commentary as he goes along, kind of expanding it, but saying the basic thrust of that. And so um, I would like you to close your eyes. Uh, and this could be a partly a prayer and partly um, a, a, just a kind of a, a review of what uh, Paul is saying here. So this is uh, verses 24 through 2, verse 1. We are called to live in the truth. We are called to embody truth in our lives. But we have traded in the truth for a lie. Our imaginations have been taken captive. We can hardly dream of what life outside the grip of idolatry would look like. We can scarcely imagine a life that isn't enslaved to consumption. We can't even begin to get our heads around justice and righteousness. Generosity and contentment are alien to us. And an economics of enough is impossible to conceive, let alone live. And so it's all so empty. It's all so foolish. It is all so senseless. We have crawled into beds, into beds with idols and not known the Lord. We have bent the knee to idolatry and not worship the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Having embraced an insatiable idolatry of greed, having been taken captive by an idolatry of consumption, our desires are perverted, our passions run wild, and we are lost in a sexual fantasy land that is deathly. 
having suppressed what all creation declares about the nature of God, having blinded ourselves to the Creator's steadfast love, to faithfulness and justice. We now bear the image of our idols in lives of voracious lust, self-serving infidelity, and sexual violence. Our young women package themselves as sexual products ready for consumption. Our young men take and conquer, racking up one sexual exploit after another. Our sexuality is divorced from covenantal intimacy and reduced to cheap carnal entertainment. But this is not why God created us as sexual beings. All of this is a betrayal of who we are called to be. The image of God is perverted by such sexual idolatry. And remember, idols are insatiable. They always require sacrifice. They are never satisfied, and they, ne and they have a terrible appetite for children. There's no idolatry apart from child sacrifice. That is the devastating truth of our culture. Yes, idols are insatiable. They always require sacrifice, and they are never satisfied. They heap up the bodies of others consumed with gluttonous sexual hunger. Faithful intimacy, commitment, sexual dignity are all placed on their altars. This is a predatory culture. Children are the most vulnerable victims, even as we are victimized by our own predations. This is the bitter fruit of idolatry. This is the sexuality of empire. So it's no surprise that the God who gives us up to insatiable lust and who gives us up to perverted desire also gives us up to a debased vision of life, a mind of debauchery. That's what happens when you refuse to know God because you are too busy screwing with idols. But make no mistake, such idolatrous copulation bears the bad fruit of deeply distorted life, full of evil longing, greed, hatred, envy, death, breaking community and destroying families, arrogance, insolent disrespect, foolishness, infidelity, and a ruthless desire, sorry, a ruthlessness that is born out of a heart that has turned its back on love. All of this, this imagination, this worldview, this cultural practice, this way of life, all of this is in the service of a culture of death. So don't be surprised if this culture dies. And don't be surprised that this way of life will kill you, even as you applaud and cheer everyone who lives this way. Let's be clear. I'm not talking about them somehow in contrast to us. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. Father, may your good news break into our world, the world we live in and the world that we are in. In Jesus' name, amen.